Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. Today we're doing a crossover with Dr. Vicky Conway of Police Podcast and Vicky's going to co-host with me. And we are joined by the Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, Liam Herrick. I think we'll start with you, Vicky. Where would you like to, you, I know you'd like to talk about the coroner's report. Um, so where would you like to start on that? Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Martin. I mean, this is a piece of work that I was initially involved in. Um, I had to pull out of it because I got unwell, I got sick. But um, it's a hugely important piece of work that the ICCL commissioned and was funded by the Human Rights and Equality Commission um, about the coroner system, which I think is a system that very people, you know, it's one of these ones we don't want to have to think about it unless we have to think about it. And by then it's too late to actually wrap your heads around it. Um, so, Liam, could you maybe start by explaining to us what are, what are coroners for? What do they do? Thanks, Vicky. Um, I suppose the purpose of, of an inquest is to explore and investigate the circumstances of, of certain categories of deaths, not all deaths, uh, but certain categories of deaths where the circumstances may be contested or where there's prima facie questions about how a person might have died. And the, the function is to provide answers to the family. Um, to also, I suppose, exercise the state's responsibility to investigate important matters, such as the the deaths of people in their care, for example, and also to to try to prevent avoidable future deaths, to learn. So there's a a very specific personal function in terms of the rights of families, three families, but there's also a public function in terms of giving answers in the public interest and preventing avoidable deaths. And it's an important, it's a very important function. But as you say, it's it's probably an area of our legal system and of our administrative system that very few people know about unless they have been through that process themselves. And most families haven't been through that. Yeah. Oh, ICCL has been interested in this issue for a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Arts Council for Civil Liberties is working on human rights issues and particularly in issues to do with the police and the legal system since 1976. Um, And over the years, many families would have come to us in different circumstances because they have lost a loved one in difficult circumstances and they um, have questions about how that happened and where they've been through inquests. Sometimes they've been very dissatisfied with that process, that they've been left at the, the end of the process with more questions, or they've been upset or even traumatized by being through that process. Um, And very often families will have been through a number of different state processes. There might have been a criminal investigation into uh, how their their loved one died. There might have been other statutory or non-statutory investigations too. And the inquest is just one unfortunate chain, link in a chain of events, which have really been a failure to, to give them justice. And we've been conscious of it for a long time. And we were interested in doing more in-depth work in it. And in, in, in fairness, uh, it was yourself, Vicky, and, and, and Phil Scraton from Queen's that came to us to, to suggest we might collaborate on a research project on it. And that really was the, the genesis of the work that, that we have now. Yeah, because, I mean, I remember being shocked about this. Like, I knew nothing about the Garner system. And when I was on the Commission on the Future Policing, I will still remember the day a family came to me at a Waterford public meeting and started talking about the inquest. And I was like, but we're here to talk about the guards. What's this got to do with the inquest? 
And they just started explaining to me the role that the guards had in this and the power that they have over the system. Um, And that's when I started looking at it and we came to you. And and so we got the funding for this work and we interviewed a huge number of families, of solicitors, of NGOs, coroners, different people involved in the system. And last week, ICCL... um, launched the the report written by Professor Phil Scraton and Dr. Gillian McNall. Um, what for you are the key findings of that report? Well, I, I suppose, as you say, Vicky, in, in terms of understanding what the report is, it, it, it heavily leans on the voices and experiences of families who have been through the process. Um, but it also then applies a human rights and, and legal analysis to that. And, and that's why particularly... Um, Phil Scraton and Gillian McNall. Phil is well known to a lot of people in Ireland because of his crucial work in reforming the inquest system in the UK. And for a lot of people, they'll be most familiar with him because of the Hillsborough campaign and the the inquest into what happened at Hillsborough. Um, So it's a combination of analysis and and the, the, the lived experience. And I mean, I have to say, for somebody who hasn't been through the inquest system myself, though I have sat in on sat in on a number of them over the years. It is quite shocking to hear the kind of human stories about people. These are, you know, bereaved families in very difficult circumstances. Usually it's to do with the tragic loss or unexpected loss of life. And they talk about, you know, being ignored, being marginalized through the process, being alienated through the process, not being given information uh, throughout the process. Whereas the state bodies that are represented had that information. And Phil, you know, spoke, I think, very powerfully at the launch event last week about families saying that they learned a lot of information for the first time on the day of the inquest about how their loved one died. Mm. And, you know, that's unnecessarily upsetting, you know, not to put it more strongly than that. People shouldn't be experiencing those kind of shocks in a court setting. Uh, They should be given that information in advance so they can be properly prepared. Um, And and, and families then also talking about, you know, what it means when you're there very often without any legal representation. And there's a number of state agencies, for example, hospitals, the HSC, other public bodies, or other commercial interests. You know, they're there with junior counsel, senior counsel, and solicitors. And when you get into a deeper, that happens in the court setting sometimes a bit too, but it's worse because legal aid doesn't provide for legal representation for many families. It can be accessible for some, but not for others. Um, juries are not independent uh, members of the public in the same way that they are in a court because very often the same people are selected by the same coroner over and over again to act in juries. They're not randomly selected, which is obviously a protection of independence in the legal system. Um, The information that the coroner is dealing with is not information that he or she was able to seek out through their own agents. It's provided largely by Angarda Siakona, even when the guards may be the subject of the investigation. And then you hear about families where a loved one might have died in a road traffic accident, for example, but they've been unsatisfied with how the guards investigated that Mm -hmm. accident. You know, their their son was a cyclist and he was knocked down. They don't think the guards did a good enough job in finding out who did it, for example. And then 
They were unsatisfied with the Garda experience. They may also have been unsatisfied with the GSOC investigation into the role of the guards. They then come to an inquest and they find the guards once again providing information for the conduct of the inquest. Uh, and in rural Ireland, the, the, the report goes, you know, that, that there's, a, there's an unhealthy closeness between the coroner, who's a part-time member of the community, a jury who might be regular uh, jury members for inquests, the local guards who are doing the investigation, and then a panoply of state agencies who seem to have more information about what's going on than the family do. All of this combines to a system that really isn't a proper administration of justice uh, and, and doesn't lead to effective outcomes. We're just going to pause the podcast now for a for a couple of minutes um, because we are still doing these um, pleas, essentially, which are the pleas for you to, if you are enjoying what you what you listen to, if you like Tortoise Shack, if you wanted to stick around, um, we would ask you to support it. We would ask you to actually go beyond supporting it and show us uh, that your support financially. Uh, and it is the Patreon model we rely on. It is that kind of crowdfund listeners uh give us the, the price of a cup of coffee and it helps us keep the mics on and having the conversations that you want to hear. Um, and Martin, it's it's been nearly three and a half, coming up on four years now. And it just feels, yeah, it's phenomenal to see how, how it's grown. But, uh, you know, it, it, that growth has to have sustainable. It has to be sustainable. Ah, yeah, it has to be, Tony. There has to be money in the bank to be able to put out these podcasts. I mean, it does cost to host them, and it costs an arm and a bloody leg. And the more the more people listen, the more expensive it gets. So, you know, we have to grow both listenership and I'm gonna, money. I'm going to stop, stop that, because that's not true. We'll be, we'll be done for saying that. And, and it's important to say, like, this does not have to be the case, you know, we can and, and the report really goes on to detail the proposals around how to reform and create a proper system on a national level with, you know, properly, uh, you know, appointed coroners with with coronial officers who would take over all of those duties from the guards with fairly appointed juries with like just transparency and training. I mean, even some of it, like I remember one interview and you, you you refer in part to it there, but, you know, in a case where I spoke to the brother of someone who died by suicide and the guard trying to be nice, like didn't want to tell them that actually it had been probably a pretty painful death um, and just told them it was an easy death um, trying to be nice. And then they're sitting in the inquest and he hears for the first time how his brother died and you know you're not in you're not in a place to take that in but you also you know the inquest is where you ask the questions about what happened yeah. and if you're only getting that information there you can't do that yeah and, and, and i mean that's a good example vicky uh, uh you know it's not that anybody sets out to do harm here you know coroners are are good people trying to do a good job um in yeah. very difficult circumstances without proper powers without proper resources but what is inexcusable is that 20 years ago, the government commissioned an independent review panel yeah. to look at the inquest system because they knew that there were problems and there were, and coroners fed into that and academics and lawyers and so on. And there was a roadmap there for reform to have a proper modern, modern inquest system where problems like that wouldn't occur. And then for 20 years, the government has done nothing. The successive governments have done nothing. So it's not that the system is de designed to be harmful or the people in the system are in any way trying to 
uh, upset families or, or deny them their rights. It's that the whole system is is ineffective in and of itself. And you know, I, I've been at inquest before with regard to to people in the prison system, and um, coroners and juries have been very diligent in you know making recommendations about preventing future deaths. And sometimes somebody in the prison service who's sitting in on the inquest will take note of the recommendations of the jury mm-hmm. and will, and I've seen this happen, will lead to change. You know, I, I've seen particularly, for example, a number of prisoners died very shortly after being released because they were released into homelessness and there were people with mental health and other needs. And it was such an upsetting experience for them that it, it, it contributed to, to them taking their own lives. And the prison service since then, for example, has tried to learn from that and try to make sure that people aren't released unless there's more attention paid to link them up with, with housing on the outside. But that's, that's a good example. But it's accidental. The whole system means that juries and, in- and coroners all the time are making recommendations. Yeah. But it's purely by chance if any of those recommendations get picked up on because there's no centralized system of learning from them. And we heard um, fr- from Phil about in England where there has been change that there's a centralized database of all recommendations from inquests, which lead up to general recommendations, which means you you can prevent future deaths. And I I think that's a very practical and simple step about how the public is just not being served by the system as it currently prevails. Yeah, because families are hurt, but that preventative role is so important. I mean, like the WHO has said that 80% of maternal deaths are preventable. Um, And yet, until about a year or two ago, families whose loved one died during or immediately after birth were having to beg for inquests to happen. Um, And then facing that institutional defensiveness when the HSC and the insurance companies all lawyer up. Uh, And so you're just like, how many of those deaths could have been prevented? And we think of Savita and we think of other families in those circumstances. And, you know, so even though most of us don't want to think about this, it's so important that we do think about this. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was very powerful from the, the examples from England about the types of things that could be prevented now. One was in, in relation to eating disorders, for example. So we're not talking about somebody that dies in prison or some, some of the areas people might traditionally think about inquests. But it was just there was inquests from people who died in hospitals and a coroner was able to see patterns that there was a disproportionate number of, of young women uh, dying from eating disorders in one area compared to other areas which indicated that maybe there was there was a missing link in the treatment cycle, and they were then able to address it. Now, in Ireland, like we see, for example, the number of cyclists that are dying, you know, and lots of inquests in different parts of the countries making recommendations about road design or about regulation of heavy good vehicles, a very simple, practical area. So I, I think there's a huge opportunity here, mm-hmm. you know, for the coroner system and for the state, if they have the political will to invest some money in getting it right. Because if they don't do that, we'll have more and more tragedies, we'll have more and more statutory inquiries, we'll have more ultimately cases going to the European Court of Human Rights, I think, about Ireland failing to vindicate the rights of bereaved families. So I I think it's a false economy to not fix this. And it's something that we strongly believe that the public is, is very passionately behind because we do care about the experience of bereavement here. 
And I think as a society, we do yeah. want to support families. Yeah. And like all of those actors involved, you know, the coroners themselves, all of the lawyers, all of the families, they all want this change. You know, nobody is resisting it. Everyone agrees it needs to occur. I can only urge people to read the report. It's a really tough read, but it's so important that everyone understands the depth of what's at stake and how people are being treated and, and how much better it should be. Um, but no, just delighted to see the report out and um, hopefully we can put that pressure on the Justice Department to take action on this. Thanks for the two of you for the work that you've done on it. It sounds extremely interesting and very in-depth, the work that you've done on it. Liam, I know we're going to talk about the restrictions coming to an end and what we've learned over the past 12 months and a little bit more. But first, I'm going to ask you about the COVID passport. Um, there are differing opinions on a COVID passport. Where does ICCL stand on that? Hi, Martin. Um, I suppose the phrase uh, COVID passport or COVID certificate or digital certificate has, has two kind of common meanings. Um, one is in relation to something that relates to international travel. Um, and the European Commission is currently working on a digital cert system, which will, it says, uh, facilitate travel between countries in the European Union. And the intention is that it will show uh, if you've had a vaccine or if you have a negative test or if you have another form of immunity to COVID. Now, already in terms of international travel, within the EU and, and globally, as a matter of course, people tend to have to produce negative tests now for international travel. So there are human rights concerns around it, about, um, first of all, that it doesn't become a permanent fixture of taking people's health data every time they're trying to travel. So how, how time-bound is it? There's data protection issues about who has access to this information, how it's managed and so on. And crucially, um, what the European Union is saying it doesn't want to do is to make it obligatory for people to have a vaccine before they're able to travel because it doesn't want to uh, make any rights conditional on vaccination. And it's also conscious that across Europe, a lot of people can't get access to the vaccine at the moment. So that's in the area of travel. And we're expecting to see something from the European Commission in the next month or two. Now, what we have said on that from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, and this is a view from privacy organisations all across Europe and human rights organisations, is that in principle, it is possible for states to control travel around contagious diseases, but you need to make sure you have strong safeguards in place. Um, if it is an optional uh, tool that allows people more easily to move rather than having to take a PCR test every time, there may be some benefits but we need to guarantee that it doesn't lead to systemic discrimination. Um, if we shift this, though, to the other usage, which is something like a vaccine or immunity certificate in terms of access to goods and services within a country, access to restaurants, bars, gyms, cinemas, employment, whatever it might be, then in that context, the human rights concerns, I think, are much, much deeper. Um, and we, at, in the beginning of January, when this was first mooted at European level, we wrote to the Minister for Foreign Affairs and we said, you know, there's human rights concerns around the travel. We want to engage with you around that. But we want the Irish government to come out against any system of discrimination on the basis of vaccination or immunity within the state. And there are reports from last night from the Fianna Fáil parliamentary uh, meeting 
that the Taoiseach indicated in a question to a journalist after the meeting that, that the position of the government at the moment is that they didn't intend to have any system like that within Ireland, citing civil liberties concerns. So if that position of the Taoiseach is borne out, we think it's very positive because we do see uh, huge difficulties and challenges with any system that would discriminate in terms of, of access to goods and services here. And it, it also, we have seen some pushback on mortgages for people trying to access their their mortgage protection, where the fact that they've had COVID is now a factor, a, a determining factor on whether they'll get approval. That's the danger of health passports or keeping health data, is that it goes into the wrong hands and then decisions which were never intended to be made are made. Is there not just a case to say that, you know, as vaccination steps up, that it should just be trust? You should trust when, ask them, have you had a, a vaccination? And if people reply yes, um, then then that's it. You, you take them on face value. Why do we need a passport at all when we're trying to get to that 80%? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things in that, Martin. I mean, first of all, under the General Data Protection Regulation, any information pertaining to a person's health is categorized as highly sensitive information. So not only do you have the same protections as other types of data, you have an additional layer as well in terms of how that information might be collected or used. So, you know, for people who advocate um, widespread use of health data, uh, health passports in access to goods and services, as has been trialed in, in Israel to a limited extent, you have to think through what this means in practice. It means potentially the doorman at a pub asking you information about your health status, then asking you to prove it, then measuring or recording in some way that information, uh, and then potentially storing it or sharing it beyond it. It's hugely problematic in terms of the bare level, in terms of your privacy about your health. And you, as you've rightly said, the uses to which this could be used are, are particularly troubling and far-reaching in terms of areas like insurance, or even just in terms of, of embarrassment and sharing your personal information. Like, for example, if you can't take a vaccine because you have an underlying health condition and you have a letter to that effect, are you are you expected to share that letter with a restaurant, you know, or a gym? Yeah. Um, you know, you then come to the question about like what is the benefit that this is meant to achieve? We have an overall strategy here in Ireland of rolling out a vaccine, which is a big, complicated task within a, a, a period of time. And the, the state's goal is to have a critical mass of people vaccinated within a fairly short period, which is a remarkable feat. Um, and if, that, if that's achieved, then society in large and business in large and so on should be relatively safe. So people suggesting that a vaccine certificate system will achieve some type of safety in some narrow window of time that can't be achieved otherwise, I, th I think that that just doesn't stand up. You know, The difference between having the economy closed and having sectors of the economy opened will be determined by a lot of different things to do with safety. You know, The level of disease in the country, what measures businesses can safely take, it's not going to happen because of the vaccine search. It's going to happen 
because of the vaccine program being rolled out. Uh, so I think the downsides are, are very significant and huge. It could mean, for example, discriminating against all persons in the country under a certain age. Um, you know, whereas the upsides are, are very hard to identify. And if there are upsides, they're not public health upsides. You know, there may be short-term commercial upsides, but but even there, it's notable that the big business organizations like IBEC and so on aren't really coming out strongly in favor of it because they know that most of the business owners don't want to put themselves in this position of controlling health data. So right. I, I, it, uh, I think it's something that's not going to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to look back. We've we've done a year of extraordinary restrictions, Liam, absolutely extraordinary things that we never thought we could see happen. And initially, ICCL were adamant that a sunshine clause be put into any legislation that was passed so that it, it reaches a deadline and it stops. Looking back over the year, what have we learned and what should we learn? And in particular, we'll say in relation to mandatory hotel quarantine. Tell it, just give us your opinion on that, Liam. We're dealing with the, the mandatory hotel quarantine first, I suppose, Martin. I mean, that that is a more recent step. It's one of a number of steps that have been taken dealing with the international threat, you know, the, the threat of the disease coming in from, from outside the country. Um, we'll come, I suppose, in a moment to the, the ones in the country. And mandatory hotel quarantine is a form of detention. Um, it, it is legitimate for the state to detain people to prevent contagious diseases, but only in very, very limited and tightly defined circumstances. It's not something that we have done in Ireland at an extensive level for several decades. We have done it, of course, in the past um, with TB and, and polio uh, many, many years ago. Um, so it's a pretty big undertaking. And I think a lot of the problems we've experienced here are, are that it was done in such a rushed way. Um, so the Department of Health was charged with setting up a system of mandatory hotel quarantine in a matter of weeks, whereas uh, they have been advised to consider it from over, you know, seven, eight months before that. Uh, so a lot of the problems have come from the haste to do it. If you're going to do it, you have to justify that it's the only way to achieve your particular goal. And if your goal is to prevent variants coming into the country or uh, stop transmission of the disease into the country, then you need to demonstrate that you've exhausted testing to its full limit, testing before travel and after travel, and that you've exhausted uh, self-quarantine or supervised quarantine in people's homes to its maximum level. And I think they are the big questions that the European Commission is asking of Ireland, because we're one of the few European countries to do this. And we never really tried to supervise home quarantine in Ireland. And we haven't had as much extensive testing around travel before and after flying as other countries have had. So, so I think that that's the kind of challenge that the state has in terms of, of justifying it. And, and once it gets into the business of having a system of hotel quarantine, the state also has to make sure that if it's only detaining some people and not others who arrive into the state, it needs a pretty solid evidence of distinguishing those two groups. And at the moment, there's a, there's a list of designated countries. And in a number of the cases that have gone to the courts, that hasn't stood up. You know, the, 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 the re legal representatives of people who have been quarantined have been able to say, 
Well, look, I travel from Israel, but it, 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 there's no compelling evidence why Israel is on the list and other countries aren't. Or I've traveled from South Africa and you can't show me why South Africa should be included and other countries haven't. That, that's a real challenge for the state because it hasn't been very clear about what the criteria are. So there, there isn't a, a ban per se on, on the government doing this, but if it was better organized, um, some more thought had gone into it, um, some more deliberation gone into it to actually identify where the risks are coming from and to put into place the stuff that we've always known should have existed, extensive contact tracing, uh, proper testing, that then you could justify mandatory hotel quarantine. But as it stands at the moment, it's difficult to, to justify it. Well, I, I think even still, the state is a high burden to meet if you know it would need to show that that supervised self-quarantine, because you see, we had a passenger locator form system in place since May 2020, but it seemed that only a small proportion of people that were subject to those rules were actually receiving phone calls from the authorities to follow up on it. So we didn't supervise it. Um, and you'd need to say, what is the specific objective at this particular point in time? Like, we're not in a situation in Ireland where we have zero COVID in the state and all the threat comes from outside. That's not the situation we're in. In fact, we have a relatively high level of transmission of the disease in our communities. So we also have a problem of an open land border with another jurisdiction as well. So like mandatory hotel quarantine, I think, was proposed by some voices, some political parties, some individuals as being the sole solution to our COVID problem, or at least the most important solution to our COVID problem. And I'm not sure that that quite stacks up. Yes, it is possible to do it. But you need to be able to justify it. You need to be able to administer it fairly. And crucially, then, when you get into the operation of it, you need to make sure you respect people's rights and you meet minimum standards. I mean, we've seen fairly worrying um, instances of, first of all, individual circumstances not being properly taken into account. So whatever about saying travelers from certain countries have to be subject to it, there must be some flexibility of hardship or personal circumstances that hasn't worked out. And then the conditions in the hotels uh, for families or for other people has also been a problem. You know, we, we've had people coming to us that are undergoing, um, you know, crucial medical treatment in another jurisdiction. And it, they can't get clarity about whether they will be safely able to travel for treatment and come back without going into a hotel. These kind of questions. So it's a bit of a legal mess at the moment, to be fair. Okay. On the... The rest of the restrictions, and as I've said, there's been phenomenal restrictions that we wouldn't normally accept in, in everyday life. What's your assessment of, of what's happened over the last 12 months? Where have we been good and where have we, have we not been good? Well, I suppose, first of all, man, it, like it's not over yet um, in terms of the restrictions. What we've done in Ireland is that even though the restrictions, as you say, are incredibly invasive and and really kind of go to the basic functionings of democratic society, um, they're the type of restrictions that usually get during a state of war, but we didn't declare a national emergency or a state of war. You know, we didn't suspend the constitution. So what Ireland has done is take extraordinary measures within the constitution. And the, the Iraq just passed a piece of legislation in March last year, the Health Amendment Act, um, which gave the Minister for Health incredibly far-reaching powers to introduce regulations. And they're 
The only thing really restricting the minister was that the power to do that was uh, limited in time. First of all, for eight months, and then in last November, it was rolled over until June 2021. So we have now a, a period of about seven or eight weeks until that ministerial power lapses. And ICCL will be publishing a report making recommendations for a comprehensive review of the whole legal system of COVID. So the 9th of June is a key moment for there. What we've seen really over the 14 months uh, since this all started is an incredible range of regulations being introduced by a minister without going through the Oireachtas, without any parliamentary oversight. Very often the regulations haven't been published before they came into effect, so you didn't even know what the law was. And they have uh, affected our ability to move around within the state, uh, the ability to hold events or attend events. Um, there's also been specific regulations for some counties at particular points in time, uh, obligations to wear face masks, restrictions on pubs and restaurants, um, and then very heavy fines and guard enforcement for all of these two. Uh, so it's an unprecedented set of laws restricting our rights, none of which have gone through the normal checks and balances on laws generally. So it's it's an incredibly unusual situation and I think throws up a very wide range of questions of, about our democracy as well as about the rule of law. Is there a, a fudge between what's legal and what's not legal in that some of the restrictions were advisory, some of them were set in legislation. Is that fudge still going on? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first problem is where you try to take away or restrict people's rights without having parliamentary legitimacy. You know, if, if, if government tries to do too much on its own without the checks and balances of, of parliament, that's a problem. And then a second problem emerges is where the government deliberately or unintentionally obscures what the law actually is. And we've had this all the way through. Um, and in fairness, uh, the, Trin the, the Trinity College Dublin COVID Observatory has done a lot of really good work on this. Uh, and we've done some on the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. We've consistently had government ministers either saying things were law that weren't law or vice versa. So, for example, the requirement on uh, older people and vulnerable adults to cocoon, as it was referred to, in the early part of, of 2020, that was often presented as if it was a legal obligation. In the same way, people generally were required uh, to not leave their home without reasonable excuse. But there was never any regulations to do with cocooning. Um, similarly, the five kilometres, I mean... Um, the way in which members of government, members of Agarda Shikona, members of the media talk about your five kilometres, that you um, can only move within five kilometres, was both uh, less restrictive than what the law really was and more restrictive. The law actually said that during the period that restrictions were in place, you could not leave your home without a reasonable excuse. And one of those reasonable excuses was exercise within a five kilometer radius. So in a way, you should not, shouldn't have been leaving your home at all, except if you were specifically going to exercise or indeed go to work or go to shop. 
But if you were going to work or go to shop, you weren't confined by five kilometers. And that was consistently misrepresented uh, by everybody involved in enforcing the system. Um, and, and I suppose more recently, we've had a controversy around the question of religious observance and whether there is a criminal law against participating in a religious ceremony at the moment. There's pretty clear law about funerals. Um, and sometimes there's been regulations about weddings, but it's been a bit less clear about whether it was a criminal offence to actually go to mass or another religious service or not. And that, again, the government has a different things to say on that at different times. All of this is more than just academic. I mean, it definitely undermines the rule of law, um, but it does set a worrying precedent. Um, I mean, in a way, things could have been much worse because if if you know if we if we look at how poorly the government subjected itself to parliamentary oversight and how poorly they respected the difference between what's law and what's not law, the consequences actually could have been a lot worse than they have been. One of the reasons that they haven't been so bad is that Angarda Shia Khan in particular have shown a fair bit of common sense and discretion about not actually applying the law overly zealously in, in some areas at least. Um, but it is a bit worrying for the future, you know, that we can have seen such sloppy attitude by government to, to the law, albeit in a national crisis. But um, we really think this is a moment to maybe tighten that up. And if we're reviewing our legislation, let's start thinking about if we're going to have future national emergencies, whether it's another pandemic or it's a natural disaster, whatever else it might be, you know, we'd want to make sure we have better democratic controls the next time, because the next time it mightn't end up being so benign, you know? Um, and in particular, a situation where we've given our police service the power to ask people where they live, where they're going, how far they are from home, and why they're walking down the street is, is not a great place to be. And just because the guards on this occasion, you know, were cautious and sensible about the use of that power doesn't mean that we should be um, careless about allowing that to happen on another occasion. And there's a really important point there, isn't there, in terms of, and it links, I suppose, to the mandatory quarantine, about some of these actions being taken to be seen to be doing something rather than the actual, you know, evidence. I mean, the, the guards were pretty clear, you know, in December and January that they didn't want to be going around handing out massive fines and that they didn't believe that was constructive and it wasn't going to encourage people to stay in their homes. And yet the government went ahead and did it. Um, do you think some of this was being done to be seen to be do something? I, I, I do. Um I think as well, the bit I think that has been weak on Ireland's COVID response has been about behavioural science, you know? Like, mm -hmm. first of all, and the guards have been the ones that have had to say this, I think, repeatedly, is that, you know, this is a public health matter. This is not a crime matter, yeah. okay? Yes, the guards have a role because they're a frontline service. And if we look at what happened in, in March, April last year, the guards got out on the street and did a public health function by helping people and by advising people and saying, look, this is the public health advice. You really shouldn't do that, or we suggest you do this instead. They didn't arrest people. They didn't have powers of enforcement. They didn't charge people. And they seemed to work very, very well. Now, at a certain point in time, it was, it was felt that they needed to have some criminal law 
to underpin their powers if people were going to refuse to comply. And that's fair enough. But I think we pushed that too far. You know, that, that we started only thinking in terms of criminal sanctions, fines, punishment. Um, the guard said, this really isn't a good place for us to be yeah. because we've got to work with the community afterwards. And public health isn't really our business. Crime is our business. The behavioral scientists were saying, OK, there can be a good instructive function of having laws on some issues. But the real way to get people to comply is simple, clear communications, you know, like flatten the curve, you know, or signs up saying two meters. And I think at a certain point in time, we just were over relying on the criminal justice sanctions, even though we knew they wouldn't really work. Because first of all, most transmission of COVID in the last few months has been in private homes. The guards can't and shouldn't be policing what goes on in private homes. The guards might see a group of lads drinking cans in the canal, but the real problem is if those guys decide to have a couple of cans inside somebody's house, you know, and the police can't deal with that. Only clear public health communications can deal with that. I I think we missed a trick because uh, the fines really don't act as an effective deterrent. They don't really engage with most people. They almost create a false sense of comfort that as long as I'm not breaking the law, mm-hmm. then I can do whatever I want. As long as I'm within my five kilometers, it doesn't matter how I behave within the five kilometers. Uh, I, I mean, personally, I think that there came a point in time in the last couple of months where if government had been clear in coming out and saying simple messages, you know, meet people outdoors, don't meet people indoors, uh, I think we might have got better results uh, than having ongoing... Just having ongoing ridiculous I, I debates about the five kilometers, the two kilometers, the ten kilometers, stuff like that, which I think was just pointless. I, I think you're right about the the public health messaging. It started off very well. It started off simple, clear messaging. But if you listen to the ads on the radio or on the TV today, it's quite complicated. The public health message has become very complicated. It's an if and when and are you doing this kind of situation? And they've lost the public health message. I think that's very clear that they've lost the room um, on, on health messaging. But as you said, we're not through this yet. And we aren't. There's no guarantee that we're out the other side of this have you concerns for further restrictions? Yeah, I mean, th- there's issues at the moment that are immediately in front of us. And I think we'll see in the next couple of days decisions coming out about the next range of restrictions. There's a couple of particular problems at the moment. One of them does relate to this, this lack of clarity about religious services, for example. And I, I think, you know, the religious uh, bodies and um, people engaged in in the religious bodies have a real legitimate gripe here that that I think that they have been treated poorly and the lack of clarity has been unfair on people. There's also an issue about the right to protest and the right to strike, where I think that there hasn't been a, a clear enough regard for those important constitutional rights. Um, so I, I think the role of the police is still a little bit unclear. Most of the the restrictions on movement have been lifted now within people's counties. But I I think the role of the guards in terms of checkpoints and policing inter-county travel is still going to be contentious for a while yet. So I think think we've got a bit to go on on those issues. Um, 
I, I do think that we, we need to re- reflect going forward as well. I think what, what Ireland has done reasonably well under the pandemic is that we have had a strong health scientific body giving health advice to government, NEFIT, right? I think that part has actually worked quite well. But what we haven't had is, um, like their concern is preventing spread of disease and protecting life, grant. But COVID is obviously much more complicated than that in terms of then how does this impact on the economy, on society, on families, on political rights and so on. And we haven't really had anybody, any uh, entity of any type, to calculate all of those elements and how to translate NEFIT's public health advice into operational rules for things like the justice system or the education system and so on. And instead, what's happened is that government at times has been very reactive and maybe responding to interests and the sharpest elbows and loudest voices rather than a kind of a structured way. Now, you can either believe the way to fix that is by having a bigger NEFIT or another body, or maybe the cabinet does its business differently. And I think it's hard to come away from looking at the way the government has responded, particularly in recent months, and, ha- and, and with the conclusion that, you know, the incoherence of the government itself has um, maybe contributed to the incoherence of some of its COVID responses. Okay, thank you so much, Liam. We've covered a huge amount, and these are issues that in the longer term as regards to the coroners, but in the shorter term, obviously, we'll be keeping an eye on and we'll hope to speak to you again, no doubt, in relation to these. Um, So thanks very much for your time today. And as ever, please go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and support us in bringing all of this content to you.